This is a reminder you're listening to the delayed broadcast here on Faith FM. If you would like to listen to the live show live and participate in the quiz and the prizes and all the other fun things that happen on Faith FM Breakfast Show, then simply download the Faith FM app available on Apple or Android platforms. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show. We are ready for another quiz, uh, another clue for our quiz this morning. I always get those words mixed up. It's, I don't know. Anyway, uh, another clue for our quiz this morning. Who am I? My name means laughter. I didn't know that actually about this person. Um, but if you know, the, if, if you're a, a fanatic about baby names, this particular name means laughter. So if you know which, main, which name means laughter, uh, you can give us a call. You can have a quick Google if you like. Uh, you can give us a call at 1-800-324-843. That's 1-800-FAITH-FM. Or you can send, us, you can send us in a text at 0491-064-669. And if you are the first person to get the correct answer this morning, we will be sending you a copy of Experiencing the Power in the Word by David Marshall. Don't forget that as we go through today's show, uh, we need to remind you that this Saturday morning between 9.30 and 10.30, we have a small group interactive Bible study happening right here. We would love to have you a part of the show. We would love to have you calling in and participating. And of course, uh, on Sunday evening, we have The End Digital. So go to theend.digital. That's the evangelistic uh um, website seminar that we are going to be presenting. Uh, Sharissa and myself will be presenting that one based on Bible prophecy, and that is a streaming program, so you can stream that one. So the end dot digital do go there. That will be happening on Sunday night. Super excited about it. Anyway, as we launch into today's Bible study subject, our passage begins in Acts chapter seventeen and verse sixteen. We are going to be reading about the Bible and culture. Most interesting story that we find right here. I did find myself quite fascinated when I was going over this this morning. So I'm looking forward to seeing what we can come up with. Cool. All right. Take it away. Okay. So we, uh, we focus in, obviously, in chapter 16, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 17 of Acts. Paul, he goes to Athens. And he's been preaching a lot of, uh, a lot of sermons. And he has to, it's a new audience. And when you're preaching to a new audience, you might not be able to say the same things to send the same message. So what he's had to do in this uh, in this passage here is he needs to change not necessarily what he's saying, but more how he's saying it. He's repackaging it. Yeah. So and and one thing that I that came to mind when I was thinking this morning is differences in regards to differences in culture. Is I I uh, I'm from Irish culture. Uh, from Irish heritage, and in Irish heritage, and, and many, many cultures, family is is something that is very significant. And in different cultures, family means something different, or or, or slightly different. Um, like when when my family gets together, it's a it's a big sort of a do thing. We we um we really go out. We we have lots of family. It's not just a small amount of family. It's big family. So now all the cousins, all the aunties, uh, and it's we make a big deal out of it. Whereas there might be other cultures where it's a lot more quieter um, or, or the focus at the, the culture is, is a little bit different. I remember at church, uh, we used to have, when I was in Cairns and went to church, 
we had a potluck lunch. Uh, we had every we had lunch together every Sabbath as a church family. Fellowship lunch. Fellowship lunch, and um, different different families that were from different cultures. They brought in different foods, and food is something that is significant in different cultures. That's the best. That's one of the things I love about having oh, so many different cultures. Fantastic. You get to try so many different things that you would never even think Absolutely. of. Absolutely. So we had you know these veggie dishes. We had, I remember there was this one week where we had uh, I think there was like five dishes that were all essentially the same thing. But they were all so, so different because they were each from different cultures. And I think they were, they were veggie dishes of, of some sort. So I just, if, culture and the differences in culture, it really fascinates me. It really does. Okay, so let's get to our Bible passage here and let's see what exactly it is that is happening. Uh, you want to start for us there in verse 16, please? Absolutely. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others, others said, He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. Okay, let's stop there for a moment, and let's do a little bit of historical analysis as to what is actually taking place. Athens was a small city. Mm. It was not a major center as far as you know commerce or not, population. Not like it is now. Not like it is now, and not like Corinth was then. So Corinth was, you know, a massive metropolis. It was, you know, a huge business center. Sydney. It was the, it Sydney, was, Melbourne. It was Sydney. It was Sydney. So basically, um, in the ancient world, Corinth was Sydney and Athens was a small Melbourne. Right. If you can look at it that way. So, okay. so Melbourne takes itself more seriously about art and... You know, philosophy and thought, whereas Sydney takes its more serious self more seriously about commerce, business. Sydney doesn't need to take itself as seriously as Melbourne because you know you've got a beautiful harbour. You've got a lot of natural beauty yep. uh, in Sydney that you don't have in Melbourne, and so it allows them to slack off in that area and just focus on making money. So, so yeah, if, if you wanted to draw a modern day comparison with cities here in Australia, it's a little bit like that. Let me like that. So Athens is your uh, is like a if you can imagine that uh, let's say Athens let's say Melbourne was about the size of Newcastle in comparison to Sydney that would be Corinth compared to Athens and Melbourne would be your your Athens. That's a good comparison. Yeah. Okay. So, but here's what Athens was: it was a university town. So right. maybe a little bit like your Armadale or something yeah. like that. Okay, so this is a university town, and it was the center of Greek philosophy. And the Greeks loved philosophy. They lived philosophy for generations, for, for well, not maybe not millennia, but for you know, for 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 centuries. Greek and Greek philosophy had dominated the world verse, and dominated thinking. I'll just read verse 21 quickly. It says, It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Okay, that was what it was all about. That's, yeah. that, that's what Athens was all about. That's where if you had some new ideas, if you had some new philosophy, that you would go to Athens 
to present it and to discuss it. Mm. And you would go up against the greatest intellects in the world yeah. at that time. The greatest intellects in the world, if you're going to be a, a, an intellectual, you would go to Athens. And so they'd all be gathered right there in Athens, and this is where all of their discussions would take place. And of course, you know that's where they, you know, and and very quickly, if you if you were a crackpot, you wouldn't get like thirty seconds worth of attention. Mm. And so Paul turns up and he's preaching about Jesus Christ and he's preaching in the marketplace and he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. Let let me read this one uh, from my translation. Uh, Verse 18. Notice with me verse 18. Uh, Here, Liam, and compare this. It says, Then certain of the philosophers and of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Other some He seems to set forth strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Right. Okay, so here's your key thought right here. He is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. See, my Bible just says that that he made... He says that he made these statements, not what they were about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's that's one that's one of the differences yeah, yeah. we were discussing yesterday between a paraphrase <laughs> yeah. and a uh, a more a more word for word style translation. Um, okay, so we we know here that he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Now this is going to be pretty bizarre for the Greeks. Now you kind of wonder why it would be bizarre, but you've got to understand where the Greek mindset was at at this time. At the higher levels of Greek society, they were atheists. Mm. You had the same thing in Egyptian society. The higher levels were atheistic in their approach. Uh The lower levels, yes, they had personification of the gods, and the gods would do this and the gods would do that. And if you look at the Greek gods, they tended to be fairly badly behaved a lot of the time. They were very, very human in the way they interacted with each other. Same with the Egyptian gods. You know, that was the standard fare back then. They'd be, they'd, they'd kill each other, or they would sleep with each other, or they would marry each other, or whatever it might be. There, there's some bad stuff used to go along between your Titans and your Olympians amongst the Greek pantheon of gods, and. Uh, these were, you know, who the common person followed. However, at the higher levels, the Greek philosophers saw these as personifications of the power of nature rather than actually being a personal god that we would, you know, consider as being a pagan god today. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Okay, so you've got these, you've got these gods, and of course, when Paul turns up and he speaks about the resurrection, at the lower levels of Greek society, yes, the supernatural was something that was very much a part of their daily life. It was something that they would involve themselves in on a regular basis, something that they believed in very, very uh, explicitly. At the higher levels, they didn't believe in the supernatural, and particularly not the resurrection. And it's not hard to understand why. How often do you see a resurrection? When was the last time you saw a resurrection? I've never seen a resurrection. Yeah, exactly. And the average person never is going to see a resurrection because this is something that takes place very, very rarely. It does happen, and it is something that God does, but not so often. And so when he starts to speak about the resurrection, you know, you've got all of these guys here. It's like, okay, this guy's just babbling on, and he's just he's, he's just the next crackpot who's turned up. And some of them start to discuss with him, and very, very quickly they realize that this guy was no crackpot. He actually had something intelligent to say. And so they took him to Mars Hill. Now, you can go to Greece today, and you can go to Mars Hill, and you can sit on top of Mars Hill, which is where 
the highest of the highest of the highest level of philosophers would gather to discuss philosophy. So these are like the elite. So now he's worked his way up from the marketplace to the elite. And the marketplace is, is, is immediately below uh, Mars Hill. And it's, it's maybe 100 meters away. It's not that far. Uh, you can see the market directly below you. And it's one of those places where you can go in uh, Bible lands, if, you do, if you're doing a Bible land tour, that's actually a genuine site, like a really, really, truly genuine site, which is kind of cool. A lot of the uh, sites that you're going to travel and visit and see, it's like, well, we think this happened in somewhere around here. But this is, this is the actual spot. <coughs> okay, so he turns up there and he is now surrounded by the greatest minds in the empire. And they're going to ask him about his faith. That in itself is a massive compliment to the genius of Paul and the blessing of the Holy Spirit Upon him, uh, let's keep reading here. Let's uh, where do we get up to? Verse twenty-two. Twenty-two. That's it. All right. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows: Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it: "To an unknown god." This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. Okay, let's stop there a moment. Let's talk about the unknown God and who the unknown God was to the Greeks. When you reach these higher levels of Greek society, you had you know all of the different gods that you could, you could sacrifice to and so forth, but you had this, this level of atheism that took place at the higher levels of society. But amongst that level of atheism, there was this general feeling that you know there was you look out into the natural world and so forth, and there is this thing called irreducible complexity that the Greeks could never truly explain. And nobody can today outside the existence of a supernatural deity. And so the other gods, they weren't worried about the other gods, you know, Mars and and uh, uh, Jupiter, Aphrodite and Jupiter and all these kind of guys. They weren't, they weren't worried about those gods because they did not see those as being real gods, but rather the you know, personifications of the force of nature. But they recognized that behind nature somewhere, there was a power that they did not understand. Mm. And they described this God as being the unknown God because, and in some ways the unknowable God for them. And so because they recognized this, they built an altar to this God. So this was the God of the universe who hid behind the scenes, uh, who was actually, you know, there was definitely a superpower out there somewhere. Um, you know, a Jedi would call it the Force. Um, you know, it's kind of, you know, how it was viewed amongst the Greek philosophers of the time. But Paul comes along and says, okay, you're aware of the unknown God. I actually know the unknown God and I can introduce him to you. Mm. Okay, so this is going to catch their attention right there. He's going to speak about the unknown God and it's going to create uh, some interesting discussion. Some powerful stuff right there. Yeah, let's keep reading about this unknown God who is the force behind everything. Verse 27. 
No, oh, is that what we're up to? That's no, we're up to 24. 24, yep. All right, 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples. Okay, so here he's speaking directly to their culture. Mm. He's uh, He has a very clear understanding of their unknown God. He's like, I'm going to talk about the unknown God. He's like, yeah, he says, this is what you believe about him. Yep. This is what's wrong. Well, he hasn't got to what's wrong yet. Oh, this is, this is what is he's, right. He's just building common ground so yeah. far. He is proclaiming, you know, this is the unknown God. Um, he is the one who made the world and everything that's in it. He's the Lord of heaven and he doesn't live in a temple. So, you know, Jupiter and Aphrodite and, and you know, um, Dionysus and all these guys had their various temples that were, you know, Saturn. dedicated to them. And, and it was believed that, you know, there was, a, there was a level of belief, particularly amongst the peasants, that these gods lived in these temples. And he's like, let me, let, let's, let's, let's get together and talk about the unknown God. We're all familiar with the unknown God. He doesn't, he, you know, he's the, he's the Lord, he's the creator, he's the power behind the power. Um, he's the one who brought everything into existence that, that we see here. So he's building common ground with them here. Uh, they are familiar with this unknown God. Okay, keep reading. Next verse. Um, this God... Oh, I lost myself. Hang on. Oh, there we go. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. Okay. So when we look at this particular verse here, where once again we see Paul building some common ground here, because you're other gods, they're going to have you know temples and sacrifices, and they're going to have their needs supplied, and this is something that you'll still see um, quite common amongst pagan religions, where they will um, you know go into the temple and satisfy the needs of the gods, and you can see them they're offering the gods food, they're often stroking the gods. Um, I've seen, you know, I've been in pagan temples where, you know, what they're doing to the gods, the statues of the gods is actually quite lewd. Um, and I was like, ooh, okay, that's how it works. Um, and, but anyway, that was, that was the nature of, um, he's talking not about those kind of gods, he's talking about the unknown God who does not have needs, who is the one who created life. Okay, verse 26 now. 26. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole world. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Okay, keep going. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Notice how Paul is building common ground. He is indeed. Okay, so he's taken a very, very different approach in reaching the Greek philosophers to the approach that he has taken in reaching the peasant on the street. Exactly. In reaching the peasant on the street, and when he goes to Corinth, he just preached Christ and him crucified. Mm. Here in Athens... He is dealing with the intellectual elite, and so he's let's, let's talk about the unknown God. We all know the unknown God. This is this is this is the unknown God. He's the he's the one, he's the force that is behind everything. He's created all that we all that we see. Um, you know, in him we live and move and be and having have our being, um, just as your own uh, poets have spoken. So he quotes to quotes them, their own people, quotes to them from their own people. This is what your people say about the unknown God. So he's, he's, he's basically saying, I am agreeing with you here about the unknown God. Your philosophers have stated this about the unknown God. So he hasn't come in and said, hey, guys, uh, the Bible says, because for them, the Bible is a Jewish book. And why would they listen to what the Bible says? 
For them, the Bible says has no weight. He can go down to the synagogue and he can say, hey, guys, the Bible says and preach Jesus Christ. And the Bible is going to have weight there, but it's not going to have weight with these philosophers. He needs to take a different approach, and he does. Keep going. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. And once again, a wise saying right here, because they had never made an idol of the unknown God. No. Because he was you know, above that and he was beyond that. Keep going. Uh, and God overlooked people's ignorance about these times in early things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. Okay, this is a great principle right here where God overlooks those things that we are ignorant of and does not hold us accountable for what we do not know. We're back after Abby Eaton with Man of Sorrows. You're listening to The Breakfast Show.
That was Abby Eden with Man of Sorrows. You're listening to The Breakfast Show and we're about to have another clue for our quiz because I don't believe anyone's answered it yet. Not quite yet. No, we're still okay. got... Uh, we're still doing... It's still live. All right. So, yeah. next clue. My com- God commanded my father to offer me as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Okay. Who was that? He was commanded to offer him as a sacrifice. Indeed. So, that's... Very, a, very famous story. Indeed. Oh, Absolutely, one of the most, fa- one of the most famous in the Bible. One that atheists absolutely love to create havoc with. <laughs> Send us in a question on the day on that one. That's it. All right. So if you know the answer to this, you can give us a call at one eight hundred three two four eight four three, or you can send us a text at zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. Okay, we need to finish off this little passage that we're reading here from Acts chapter seventeen. Let's go. I'll go from, from thirty this. again. Okay. All right. God overlooked these people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now He commands everyone every to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world and ju- with justice by the man he has appointed. And he, app- and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were, among them were, were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, so there was a number of Greek philosophers here that did give their lives to Jesus Christ and became a part of the uh, church at that particular time. And so there was obviously a lot more than Paul had to say than what is summarized right here. But it gives you a clue, it gives you an insight in how, into how he reached out to this particular people group. He found some common ground with them and he built on that common ground to be able to present Jesus Christ to them. The big stumbling block, of course, was the concept of the resurrection from the dead because for this particular group of people, that was just taking the supernatural a little bit too far. Okay, so what we have here is Paul is placing the gospel in a culturally relevant context. Here's the question. Can you go too far in that? And if so, where do you draw the line? I, I think you probably could. Mm-hmm. The line, I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not too sure. I think that the, the line depends on who you're talking to. Yeah, I think I think the line is drawn when we start to promote something that is, you know, to use something that they have to promote something that is not of God, mm. um, and to and to and to pitch it in a in a positive light. Mm. And so Paul definitely pitches their unknown God in a positive light, but then reveals the unknown God to them. So he takes them on that journey. Culture is an interesting thing, and you, and you find here Paul, you know, reaching out to a different culture in a different way, and we need to be, you know, very, very culturally aware when we are doing cross-cultural ministry. And so if, as Christians, we are always going to be doing cross-cultural ministry, particularly living here in Australia. Uh, we have one of the biggest melting pots uh, that there is in the world of every different nation on earth, and so there's kind of never going to be a time when you're not going to be doing some level of cross-cultural ministry. And it's important to understand the culture that people come from. The other thing that's also important to recognize is that God is above culture. And when culture is wrong, God changes the culture. 
Because sometimes I have people come to me and they're like, well, we need to make a big issue over this, a big issue over this issue or that issue or the other issue. And you might say, well, you know, in the Bible, God doesn't make a big issue over it, so why should we? And they say, well, God was just speaking to the culture of the time. Well, the simple reality is there are many, many examples in the Bible where God contradicted the culture of the time. And when the culture was wrong, God stepped in and God changed the culture so that it ceased to be wrong. Um, We could take the example of slavery, for instance. The culture of the time was that if you owned a slave, they were your property in exactly the same way as your cow was your property. And uh, the culture of the time was you could treat either your slave or your cow any way you wanted. God stepped in and said, no, the culture is wrong. You can't treat your cow any way you want. And if you're going to have a slave, you actually can't have a slave. You can only have you know, lower paid um, subcontractors because the, you know, the, the Bible translated is the word slave, but it's actually the word servant because they're low paid su- subcontractors who you know, subcontract for a set period of time. And so God steps in and changes the culture and says, okay, let's get, get rid of this, this issue of slavery altogether and let's make sure that everybody gets paid for their services and has the freedom to be able to come and go and particularly the freedom of worship um, that you know, is important for everybody. And so you're going to find that you know, really throughout the Bible where when there is a problem, God changes the culture. And so this is my issue. If God has not seen fit to step in and change the culture, why should we make a big deal over issues that God does not make a big deal over? We probably shouldn't be. Exactly. Anyway, uh, another area where I see culture is becoming an issue is in the export of Christianity. Mm. So Christianity became very much a European religion. It started as an Asian religion, but it morphed and became a European religion. And it is largely seen as being a European rather than an Asian religion today. Now... Because of that, and because of Europe's dominance in the world in the last couple of thousand years, we have exported Christianity along with European dominance. As we have done so, we have exported our culture. And so you've got colonialism and the missionary societies that kind of rise up together One is focused on making money and the other is focused on spreading the gospel. And when the missionary societies began, there were a lot of missionaries who went out during, you know, particularly the early years of, you know, your big missionary societies who had this view that Western culture was the correct culture and therefore you had to change the people into being Western people if they were going to become Christians. You had to convert them to Westernism. And that created all kinds of trouble. And, you know, you look at people like Hudson Taylor who went to take the gospel to China and grew a pigtail. You know, that was a terrible thing to do within the uh, 
uh, Christian Western culture that he came from in England at the time, people thought he was most strange. It was like, well, I live with the Chinese. This is how the Chinese live. This is how they dress. This is how they act. And I'm reaching out to Chinese people, and I'm not threatened by their culture. We were we were tremendously threatened by their culture. You go to you go to the South Pacific today, and I guess that's relevant for us here in Australia because it's so close. And you look at the church culture that they have today; it is the church culture of Western Christianity from a hundred years ago. And that's because you know you get this situation where this is the what we brought. With along with our Christianity was our culture, and we did not just convert people to our religion, we converted them to our culture at the same time. And we built a tried to endeavor to build a biblical framework around our culture that is not necessarily something that is biblical. And so, the real key thought here is whatever the standards we live in our life. We need to stop and ask ourselves the question, is this really biblical or is it expression of our culture or someone else's culture or a past culture? It is a most interesting discussion to have. Anyway, let's uh, listen to Jane in Orwa with Mirror Mirror. Mirror, stop telling me lies. You're making me despise. God made me to be Lord help me recognize I'm precious in your sight Jesus help me see your love for me Mirror, mirror on the is about to fall I will not listen to your lies My value lies in Jesus Christ His life he freely sacrificed To offer me abundant life He purchased me He paid my price I'm precious in His sight Precious in His sight Mirror you won't defy the reason why I won't believe your lies so clearly now I see is love for me so mirror mirror on the wall your kingdom is about to fall I will not listen to your lies my value lies in Jesus Christ this life be freely Precious in his sight 
team here at Faith FM want to encourage you to be the hands and feet of Jesus in your community, to stay positive and to stay connected in this virus season. Keep in touch with vulnerable members of your community like grandparents or new mothers and see if there's something you can do to help them with simple things like picking up some groceries, collecting the mail or dropping off some meals. Little things like this make a huge difference to someone living in isolation or quarantine. Hey fam, it's Kemi Gendi and you're listening to Faith FM. If what God has already done isn't enough for you, nothing's going to be enough for you. Because it's meant to be real. And real life stories have baggage. We know that Peter's a loose cannon. It's all about context. And he chose different personalities to express that because his personality is infinite. If it's a love song written to us, when we're at our lowest points, we've got backup. Like a lot of the rational arguments for the existence of God, they tend to work better after you believe. Hi, this is Luke from oztabletalk.com.au. Please join myself and some of my closest friends as we explore our faith through conversation, Bible study, interviews, and more. You can find us online at oztabletalk.com.au. That's oz as in Australia, A-U-S, tabletalk.com.au. Looking forward to seeing you there. Bye. I'm so glad that's recorded because I want to write that down. Yeah. (laughs) Someone called it a care package there. Wow.
Welcome back, guys. That was Kemi Agendi with, uh, what was it? Everything. Everything, everything, right there. Very good. Okay, so. Uh, we had a winner for our quiz. We did, we did, we did. We did. Julia, congratulations. Julia from South Australia correctly answered with Isaac. So, congratulations to Julia. Well done, Julia. Prize coming Indeed. your way. Indeed. Moving on to question of the day. Yes. Question of the day time. What happened to Satan and his demon angels during the flood? How did they survive it? Because we know demons got cast into pigs in the New Testament. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure about the relationship between demons being cast into pigs um, because we don't, you know, while they were cast into pigs, it was the pigs who died and not the demons when the pigs ran down into the um, Sea of Galilee. So that's an important distinction to make. Okay, the real simple answer to this question is the Bible doesn't say, but it is worth thinking about. And so it's a good question to stop and think about. So when you think about the reality of demons who have been forced, Satan and his angels, who have been forced to stay here on this earth during the flood, the first thing we need to note is that these are spirit beings, not flesh and blood beings. And as a spirit being, they're not going to be affected by the flood in the same way that a flesh and blood being is. Flesh and blood being without the ark is not going to survive it. Now, if you look at our world today and you look at the reality that from the top of the highest mountains, you're right at the top of Everest, you've got uh, sedimentary rock with sea life in it. You know, this is evidence that this was once a part of the world that was beneath the water. And when you get these big mountain ranges being pushed up, and I'm thinking about, you know, the, the, the Himalayas, the, um, the Alps in Europe, the Rockies, the Andes, you know, some of these massive mountain ranges being pushed up. It is worth considering the convulsions that our world would have been going through. The Bible says the fountains of the deep were broken up and that rain came after that down out of the sky. And so it's not hard to see that there would have been plenty of water, you know, stored beneath the surface of the earth in the granite crust of the earth 
that once that was broken up would come, you know, just blasting out into the surface. And so you've got a breakup of the granite crust of the earth. You've got a tremendous amount of water being blasted out into the atmosphere. You've got then you've then got that water coming down and falling on the world. And some people are like, oh, well, how did we get water that was uh, 30,000 feet deep so that you could cover Everest? No. The mountains weren't as high as Everest before the flood. The world was a lot rounder than what it is right now. And those were pushed up during the flood. Now, if you go back to the great earthquake that we had about, what was it, 20 years ago? Uh, in the Indian Ocean, big Indian Ocean earthquake. In a space of a very short space of time, you had um, 300,000 people who died. Was that the one in Haiti? No. No, okay, Indian Ocean. Indian one, different one. Yep. So we had about 300,000 people that died in a very, very short space of time, and that was a result of the tsunami. In that earthquake, you had some islands that were moved 30 metres I think Haiti was one of those. No. No? Wrong ocean. Wrong ocean. No. I'm thinking of something else. Never mind. You Keep are. on going. Um, so you've got some, some islands that were moved 30 metres. Imagine if you had, rather than an island being moved 30 metres, you've got a massive mountain range that is pushed up 10,000 metres. Now start to put that into a bit of context and you can imagine what the people inside the ark are going through and how it truly was only by the supernatural divine intervention of God that the ark itself survived. Now you can imagine that Satan and his angels, you know, this is, this is their home. This is the only place on earth that has accepted them. They don't have freedom to go anywhere else in the universe. They're stuck here and all of this is taking place and even as a spirit being, I am very, very sure that they feared for their very existence. And I tend to think that you would have had demons that were screaming for their life, you know, while this flood was taking place, going through. And and, and once again, the Bible is silent on this. I need to emphasize that point. I'm sharing my opinion right now. But I would see them be, as being definitely being afraid for their existence. You know, when you think about the massive convulsions that our world was going through and the evidence of which we see happening right now, you know, you, you've got things like you know, your Grand Canyon being carved out in, you know, a space of hours, you know, all those sediments being laid down, carved out. It's just, you know, hard to even imagine what is taking place. Anyway, this is uh, Chris Awenega with Holy, Holy, Holy.
Chris Wenegar with Holy, Holy, Holy. You're listening to The Breakfast Show and we are about to launch into... We are about to come to the end of our show, which means that we are about to launch into giving something away. We are indeed. We are indeed. What am I talking about? Launching into giving something away. First caller through... Uh, what have you got for us, Liam? Uh, this morning we have got Babylon Rising. This is a book by John Bradshaw, Pastor John Bradshaw, who has put together a book. Uh, and you know, Revelation it speaks of a, of a mysterious power that rises to the height of uh, global dominion, and it will strip the world of religious freedom, and it will grip national economies in a financial uh, stronghold, accumulating with the mark of the beast. And this this book here it it dives into that. It talks about the whole story getting into that. So uh, a wonderful piece of literature by uh, John Bradshaw right there. Speaking okay. of, speaking of which, John Bradshaw, if you if you stay tuned after the, after our program, John Bradshaw is coming up next. Oh, fantastic! So so stay tuned for that. Wonderful, more more great stuff from him there. Absolutely. John Bradshaw, one of the best presenters that we have here on, if not the best presenter we have here on Faith FM, so don't be going anywhere. Uh, right now, though, we want to remind you that uh, we would love to you to study the Bible during this uh, coronavirus lockdown. We can offer it to you via online format with somebody to guide you through it, or we can offer it to you via correspondence once again with a uh, somebody who can guide you through your Bible studies. Just give us a call on 1-800-324-843 and we can set that up for you. And don't forget, as you go through this day, as always, remember to talk faith, live faith, act faith, and grow strong in Jesus.
Let me hide myself in thee.